0: Chapter thirty three, part one of Run to Earth, a novel by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Gail Mattern. Chapter thirty three Treason has done his worst. Part one. Black Milsom, otherwise Mr. Maunders, kept a close watch on Rainham Castle through the agency of his friend James Harwood, whose visits he encouraged by the most liberal treatment, and for whom he was always ready to brew a steaming jorum of punch. Mr. Maunders showed a great deal of curiosity concerning the details of life within the castle, and was particularly fond of leading Harwood to talk about the excessive care taken of the baby heiress, and the precautions observed by Lady Eversleigh's orders. One day, when he had led the conversation in the accustomed direction, he said, "'One would think they were afraid somebody would try to steal the child.' "'So you would, Mister Maunders. "'But you see, every situation in life has its trials, "'and a child can't be a great heiress for nothing. "'One day, when I was sitting in the rumble of the open carriage, "'I heard Captain Copplestone let drop in his conversation with Mrs. Morden "'as how the child has enemies. "'Bitter enemies,' he said. "'as might try to do her harm "'if she weren't looked after Sharp. "'I've known you a good long time now, Mr. Harwood, "'and you've partaken of many a glass of rum-punch in my parlour, "'said Black Milsom, otherwise Mr. Maunders, of the Cat and Fiddle, "'and in all that time you've never once offered to introduce me "'to one of your fellow-servants, "'or asked me to take so much as a cup of tea in your servants' hall. "'Begging your pardon, Mr. Maunders,' said the groom in an insinuating tone as to asking a friend to take a cup o tea or a little bit o supper without leave from mrs smithson the housekeeper is more than my place is worth but you might get leave i should think eh james harwood returned milsom especially if your friend happened to be a respectable householder and able to offer a comfortable glass to any of your fellow-servants i'm sure if i had thought as you'd accept an invitation to the servants hall "'I'd have asked leave before now,' replied James Howard, "'But I'm sure I thought as you wouldn't demean yourself "'to take your glass of ale or your cup of tea "'anywhere's below the housekeeper's room, "'and she's a rare starched one as Mrs. Smithson.' "'I'm not proud,' said Mr. Milsom. "'I like a convivial evening, "'whether it's in the housekeeper's room or the servants' hall.' "'Then I'll ask leave to-night,' answered James Harwood. "'He sent a little scrawl to Milsom next day "'by the hands of a stable-boy,' inviting that gentleman to a social rubber and a friendly supper in the servants hall that evening at seven o'clock to spend a few hours inside raynham castle was the privilege which black milsom most desired and a triumphant grin broke out upon his face as he deciphered james Harwood's clumsy scrawl how easy it's done he muttered to himself how easy it's done if a man has only the patience to wait the servants hall was a pleasant place to live in but if mrs smithson the housekeeper was liberal in her ideas she was also strict and on some points especially severe and the chief of these was the precision with which she required the doors of the castle to be locked for the night at half-past ten o'clock on more than one occasion lately mrs smithson had a suspicion that there was one offender against this rule the offender in question was matthew brooke the head coachman a jovial, burly Briton, with convivial habits and a taste for politics, who preferred enjoying his pipe and glass and political discussion in the parlour of the Hen and Chickens public-house to spending his evenings in the servants' hall at Raynham Castle. He was rarely home before ten, sometimes not until half-past ten, and one never-to-be-forgotten night, Mrs. Smithson had heard him, with her own ears, Enter the doors of the castle at the unholy hour of twenty minutes to eleven. There was one appalling fact of which Mrs. Smithson was entirely ignorant, and that was the fact that Matthew Brooke had entered the castle by a little half-glass door on several occasions, half an hour or more after the great oaken door leading into the servants' hall had been bolted and barred with all due solemnity before the approving eyes of the housekeeper herself the little door in question opened into a small ground-floor bedroom in which one of the footmen slept and nothing was more easy than for this man to shelter the nightly misdoings of his fellow-servant by letting him slip quietly through his bedroom unknown to any member of the household james harwood the groom was a confirmed gossip and of course he had not failed to inform his friend mr maunders otherwise black milsom of Matthew Brooke's little delinquencies. Mr. Maunders listened to the account with interest, as he did to everything relating to affairs in the household of which Harwood was a member. It was some little time after this conversation that Mr. Milsom was invited to sup at the castle. Several friendly rubbers were played by Mrs. Trimmer, the cook, Matthew Brooke, the coachman, James Harwood, and Thomas Milsom, known to the company as Mr. Maunders honest matthew and he were partners and it was to be observed by any one who had taken the trouble to watch the party that milsom paid more attention to his partner than to his cards whereby he lost the opportunity of distinguishing himself as a good whist player the whist party broke up while the cloth was being laid on a large table for supper and the men adjourned to the noble old stone quadrangle on which the servants hall abutted james howard brooke milsom and two of the footmen strolled up and down smoking under a cold starlit sky the apartments occupied by the family were all on the garden front and the smoking of tobacco in the quadrangle was not forbidden milsom who had until this time devoted his attention exclusively to the coachman now contrived to place himself next to james harwood as the party paced to and fro before the servants quarters "'Which is the little door Brooke slips in at when he's past his time?' he asked carelessly of Harwood, taking care, however, to drop his voice to a whisper. "'We're just coming to it,' answered the groom. "'That little glass door on my right hand. "'Steph's a good-natured fellow, and always leaves his door unfastened when old Matt is out late. The room he sleeps in was once a lobby, and opens into the passage, so it comes very convenient to Brooke.' "'Everybody likes old Matt Brook, you see, "'and there isn't one amongst us, would Peach, if he got into trouble.' "'And a jolly old chap he is as ever lived,' answered Black Milsom, "'who seemed to have taken a wonderful fancy to the convivial coachman. "'You come down to my place whenever you like, Mr. Brook,' he said presently, "'putting his arm through that of the coachman, in a very friendly manner. "'You shall be free and welcome to everything I've got in my house.' "'and I know how to brew a decent jorum of punch when I give my mind to it, don't I, Jim?' "'Mr. James Harwood protested that no one else could brew such punch "'as that concocted by the landlord of the Cat and Fiddle. "'The supper was a very cheery banquet. "'Ponderous slices of underdone roast beef disappeared as if by magic, "'and the consumption of pickles, from a physiological or sanitary point of view, "'positively appalling.' After the beef and pickles came a titanic cheese and a small stack of celery, while the brown beer pitcher went so often to the barrel that it is a matter of wonder that it escaped unbroken. At a quarter past ten, Mr. Maunders bade his new acquaintance good-night, but before departing he begged as a great favour to be permitted one peep at the Grand Oak Hall. "'You shall see it,' cried good-natured Matthew Brooke. "'It's a sight worth coming many a mile to see.' "'Step this way!' "'He led the way along a dark passage "'to a door that opened into the great entrance hall. "'It was indeed a noble chamber. "'Black Milsom stood for some moments "'contemplating it in silence, "'with a reverential stare. "'And which may be the back staircase "'leading to the little ladies' rooms?' "'He asked presently. "'That door opens to the foot of it,' "'replied the coachman. "'Captain Copplestone sleeps in the room "'you come to first, on the first floor,' AND THE LITTLE MISSY'S ROOMS ARE INSIDE HISN. GERTRUDE Eversleigh, THE HEIRESS OF RAINHAM, WAS ONE OF THOSE LOVELY AND caressing CHILDREN WHO WIN THE HEARTS OF ALL AROUND THEM, AND IN WHOSE PRESENCE THERE IS A CHARM AS SWEET AS THAT WHICH LURKS IN THE BEAUTY OF A FLOWER OR THE SONG OF A BIRD. HER MOTHER IDOLIZED HER, AS WE KNOW, EVEN THOUGH SHE COULD RESIGN HERSELF TO A SEPARATION FROM THIS LOVED CHILD, SACRIFICING AFFECTION TO THE ALL-ABSORBING PURPOSE OF HER LIFE. Before leaving Raynham Castle, Honoria had summoned the only friend upon whom she could rely, Captain Copplestone, the man whose testimony alone had saved her from the hideous suspicion of murder, the man who had boldly declared his belief in her innocence. She wrote to him, telling him that she had need of his friendship for the only child of his dead friend, Sir Oswald, and he came promptly in answer to her summons, "'pleased at the idea of seeing the child of his old comrade. "'He had read the announcement of the child's birth in the newspapers, "'and had rejoiced to find that Providence had sent a consolation to the widow "'in her hour of desolation. "'She is like her father,' he said softly, "'after he had taken the child in his arms "'and pressed his shaggy moustache to her pure young brow. "'Yes, the child is like my old comrade, Oswald Eversleigh, she has your beauty too lady eversleigh your dark eyes those wonderful eyes which my friend loved to praise i wish to heaven that he had never seen them exclaimed honoria they brought him only evil fortune anguish untimely death come come cried the captain cheerily this won't do if the workings of two villains brought about a breach between you and my poor friend and resulted in his untimely end the sin rests on their guilty heads, not on yours. And the sin shall not go unpunished even upon this earth, exclaimed Honoria with intensity of feeling. I only live for one purpose, Captain Copplestone, and that is to strip the masks from the faces of the two hypocrites and traitors who between them compassed my disgrace and my husband's death, and I implore you to aid me in the carrying out of my purpose. How can I do that? cried the Captain when I begged you to let me challenge that scoundrel Carrington and fight him, in spite of our cowardly modern fashion, which has exploded dueling, you implored me not to hazard my life. I was your only friend, you told me, and if my life was sacrificed, you would be helpless and friendless. I gave way in order to satisfy you, though I should have liked to send a bullet through that French scoundrel's plotting brains. And I thank you for your goodness, answered Lady Eversleigh, It is not by the bullet of a brave soldier that Victor Carrington should die. I will pursue the two villains silently, stealthily, as they pursued me, and when the hour of my triumph comes, it shall be a real triumph, not a defeat like that which ended their scheming. But if I stoop to wear a mask, I ask no such service from you, Captain Copplestone. I ask you only to take up your abode in this house, and to protect my child while I am away from home. You are really going to leave home? For a considerable time. And you will tell me nothing about the nature of your schemes? Nothing. I shall do no wrong, though I am about to deal with men so base that the common laws of honor can scarcely apply to any dealings with them. And your mind is set upon this strange scheme? My mind is fixed. Nothing on earth can alter my resolution, not even my love for this child captain copplestone saw that her determination was not to be reasoned away and he made no further attempt to shake her resolve he promised that during her absence from the castle he would guard sir oswald's daughter and cherish her as tenderly as if she had been his own child it was by the captain's advice that mrs morden was engaged to act as governess to the young heiress during her mother's absence she was the widow of one of his brother officers a highly accomplished woman "'and a woman of conscientious feelings and high principle. "'Never had any creature more need of your protection than my child has,' said Honoria. "'This young life and mine are the sole obstacles that stand between Sir Reginald Eversleigh and Fortune. "'You know what baseness and treachery he and his ally are capable of committing. "'You cannot, therefore, wonder if I imagine all kinds of dangers for my darling.' "'No,' replied the captain.' I CAN ONLY WONDER THAT YOU CONSENT TO LEAVE HER. AH, YOU DO NOT UNDERSTAND. CAN YOU NOT SEE THAT, SO LONG AS THOSE TWO MEN EXIST, THEIR CRIMES UNDISCOVERED, THEIR REAL NATURE UNSUSPECTED IN THE WORLD IN WHICH THEY LIVE, THERE IS PERPETUAL DANGER FOR MY CHILD. THE TASK WHICH I HAVE SET MYSELF IS THE TASK OF WATCHING THESE TWO MEN, AND I WILL DO IT WITHOUT FLINCHING. WHEN THE HOUR OF RETRIBUTION APPROACHES, I MAY NEED YOUR AID. "'but till then, let me do my work alone and in secret.' "'This was the utmost that Lady Eversleigh told Captain Copplestone, "'respecting the motive of her absence from the castle. "'She placed her child in his care, trusting in him under Providence, "'for the guardianship of that innocent life, "'and then she tore herself away. "'Nothing could exceed the care which the veteran soldier "'bestowed upon his youthful charge. "'It may be imagined, therefore, that nothing short of absolute necessity would have induced him to leave the neighbourhood of raynham during the absence of lady eversleigh unhappily this necessity arose within a fortnight after the night on which black milsom had been invited to supper in the servants hall captain copplestone quitted raynham castle for an indefinite period for the first time since lady eversleigh's departure he was seated at breakfast in the pretty sitting-room in the south wing "'which he occupied in common with the heiress and her governess, "'when a letter was brought to him by one of the castle servants. "'Ben Simmons has just brought this up from the hen and chicken, sir,' said the man. "'It came by the mail-coach that passes through Raynham at six o'clock in the morning.' "'Captain Copplestone gazed at the superscription of the letter with considerable surprise. "'The handwriting was that of Lady Eversleigh, and the letter was marked immediate and important.' In those days there was no electric telegraph, and a letter conveyed thus had pretty much the same effect upon the captain's mind that a telegram would nowadays exercise. It was something special, out of the common rule. He tore open the missive hastily. It contained only a few lines in Honoria's hand, but the hand was uncertain, and the letter scrawled and blotted, as if written in extreme haste and agitation of mind. Come to me at once, I entreat. "'I have immediate need of your help. "'Pray come, my dear friend. "'I shall not detain you long. "'Let the child remain in the castle during your absence. "'She will be safe with Mrs. Morden. "'Clarendon Hotel, London. "'This and the date was all.' "'Captain Copplestone sat for some moments, staring at this document with a look of unmitigated perplexity. "'I can't make it out,' he muttered to himself.' "'Presently,' he said aloud to Mrs. Morden, "'What a pity it is you women all write so much alike "'that it's uncommonly difficult to swear to your writing. "'I'm perplexed by this letter. "'I can't quite understand being summoned away from my pet. "'I think you know Lady Eversleigh's hand.' "'Yes,' answered the lady. "'I received two letters from her before coming here. "'I could scarcely be mistaken in her handwriting.' "'You think not?' "'Very well, then.' "'Please tell me if that is her hand,' said the captain, "'showing Mrs. Morden the address of the missive he had just received. "'I should say decidedly, yes, that is her hand.' "'Hmph!' muttered the captain. "'She said something about wanting me when the hour of retribution drew near. "'Perhaps she has succeeded in her schemes more rapidly than she expected, "'and the time is come.' "'The little girl had just quitted the room with her nurse,' to be dressed for her morning run in the gardens. Mrs. Morden and the captain were alone. "'Lady Eversleigh asks me to go up to London,' he said at last, "'and I suppose I must do what she wishes. But upon my word, I've watched over little Gertrude so closely, and I've grown so foolishly fond of her, that I don't like the idea of leaving her, even for twenty-four hours, though of course I know I leave her in the best possible care.' "'What danger can approach her here?' "'Ah, what danger indeed,' returned the captain thoughtfully. "'Within these walls she must be secure.' "'The child shall not leave the castle, nor shall she quit my sight during your absence,' said Mrs. Morden, "'but I hope you will not stay away long.' "'Rely upon it that I shall not remain away an hour longer than necessary,' answered the captain." an hour afterwards he departed from raynham in a post-chaise he left without having taken any farewell of gertrude eversleigh he could not trust himself to see her this grim weather-beaten old soldier had surrendered his heart entirely to the child of his dead friend he travelled londonwards as fast as continual relays of post-horses could convey him and on the morning after he had received the letter from lady eversleigh a post-chaise covered with the dust of the roads rattled up to the clarendon hotel and the traveller sprang out after a sleepless night of impatience and anxiety show me to lady eversleigh's rooms at once he said to one of the servants in the hall i beg your pardon sir said the man what name did you say lady eversleigh eversleigh a widow lady staying in this house there must be some mistake sir there is no one of that name at present staying in the hotel answered the man the housekeeper had emerged from a little sitting-room and had overheard this conversation no sir she said we have no one here of that name captain copplestone's dark face grew deadly pale a trap he muttered to himself a snare that letter was a forgery and without a word to the people of the house he darted back to the street sprang into the chaise, crying to the postilions. Don't lose a minute in getting a change of horses. I am going back to Yorkshire. End of chapter 33, part 1